0: You can imagine the culture shock that I went through when you were born and raised in San Francisco and then spent nine years living in San Diego. When I ended up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a far cry from anything I knew culturally. Uh, one of the, the hardest parts for me was warming up to what was the deep south and kind of southern fried Christianity. Uh, th- this was kind of a different nuanced thing, and maybe some of you are aware of of that but I, uh, I had a hard time with uh, a couple of things that I, I just noticed is that people much more readily identified with a denomination than they would Jesus and so you'd find people you'd start chatting them up and say well I'm, you know I'm a Baptist and or, or I'm a Methodist or uh, I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian and in, in, in the West people would just if you happen to find someone who also was a Christian, they go, oh, you're a Christian too, you know, what church do you attend? You know, it would would go something more like that, and um, I remember just struggling with some of the the cultural uh, nuances, Um, but then I read this book about 20 years ago, and the book was called Letters from a Skeptic, and it was three years of correspondence between a son and a father that they ended up publishing, And the son happened to be a Bible professor and a pastor and was very knowledgeable in scripture. Uh, And his dad was, clearly an unbeliever I'll just say he was an agnostic which was simply defined as someone who believes in a supreme power but wouldn't land on what deity he actually believes in and so this book was remarkable because it was their correspondence not as someone who was right trying to convince someone who was wrong it was a loving expression and trying to explain to him the difference that Christ had made and the truth that he had come to just build his life around. And so the father was the skeptic and he kept asking these really hard, really honest questions. And the son, um, in the most loving way, was just providing the best answers he could. And at the end of three years, the father came into relationship with Christ and was able to come to this not only um, uh, a, a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge of what it meant to say, I do, to Christ. I remember reading that book and I thought, I have got to create Uh, an environment where I can host this kind of conversation because I had been raised in the church even though it was in the secular west I had never found something that felt like this kind of open dialogue and so I created a group um, called God Who and we simply described it as an open discussion on the purpose and or existence of God. And the whole point was, if you were a Christian and you could handle going to Sunday school and you could go to youth group or you could go to church, you were not welcome to come. But if you had someone who had written off or given up on church, then you could host them with us. And so we met not at a church, but we met on campus at the University of Alabama, and it took place with 8 to 12 people every week for the better part of three years, And it was a remarkable group. And what I would simply say is, um, I'm not the Bible answer man, and if you want an argument, I'm not your guy, but if you wanna build a relationship, um, then let's talk. And then I'd go a step further and say, now I would just tip my hand and say, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, but um, I don't need to convert anyone here. I'm simply just trying to create a place, believing this. People are inherently spiritually curious, they just don't know how to ask their questions. And so, if I don't know the answer, I'm willing to go look into it, but creating a dialogue. And if in the next hour and a half, we don't all walk out of here nodding our heads in agreement, that's okay too. Would you get me a cup of water, please? And so, um, this was the kind of group. And initially, I just took Questions directly out of the book, but after the first six months of doing this, we kind of created our own discussion, and it would have been so much easier to have a Sunday school class. It would have been so much easier to have a curriculum, but instead, we walked into this faith journey together, not knowing where the conversation would land. Well, where it landed was people coming into a healthy understanding. Thank you so much of where um, of where God fit in their life, and the testimony again and again was, I had so many questions. But I didn't feel like church was a safe place to ask them. I had questions, and my doubts were not received because it was not part of the sort of the, 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 the popular opinion. And so I stopped coming. And it's not that their spiritual curiosity or their spiritual hunger ever went away. And so the question that I'm asking us as we go further, you might have been sitting in a pew your whole life. Maybe today is your first time visiting church for a long time. Wherever you find yourself on the spiritual continuum of of Christ uh, as, as God's salvation to the world, I simply want to say this. We all have questions. We all have doubts. If I'm honest, I don't really care for God's timing. I don't necessarily like his ways. I certainly don't understand him. So we start to ask questions. Is God a person? Is God a force? Is God present? Does God care? Is he near? Is he a he? Is he a she? What is God? So I'm asking lots of those provocative questions. But then I found this passage that is God's self-disclosure. And again, it comes up uh, nine different times where other prophets and teachers throughout scripture go back to this passage. And so I wanna spend the next few weeks looking at this passage out of uh, Exodus chapter 34, because this is one of the most um, hinge pin passages. Um, It's the only place where God self describes. And because of that, I believe is the epicenter of our theology of God. Now we can shake our fist at God a lot. We can get angry at God a lot. Um, But I think it helps us to understand God's nature. So I wanted to read God's self-description and it's, and it's an interesting way if we can pull back the layers. Now, I'm gonna to try to not get too ahead of myself, and maybe you're gonna end up in the next 20 minutes asking more questions about, I wish Dave talked about that more. Come back, because over the next few weeks, I wanna have some discussion about this. But the passage simply says in Exodus 34, verses six and seven. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. So whenever you see the Lord a couple of times, it's interesting to note because it's emphatic. The the two terms come translate to us, meaning Yahweh Elohim. And so I just want to spend a little time in the Hebrew unpacking what that emphasis means to us. But this is how the Lord describes the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children uh, and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Ouch! I would have liked to have left off verse 7 but verse seven is an interesting thing because verse seven, this is the only time that it's mentioned. Now, I'm gonna go into this a lot further, but simply saying, for some of us here who struggle with the choices that our kids make outside of our will and our desire, let me simply say that from here, when it's repeated those eight other times, it doesn't include your punishment for your kids or your penalty for your parents' choices. That's another conversation. I'm just going to park it right there, but not wanting to believe that God's still angry with us because of what our grandparents might have done. There's a really fascinating uh, explanation for all of this, but suffice to say that when we grow up in homes, we tend to inherit the culture, the value, the mores, the beliefs, the biases of the home in which we grew up in. So if you grow up in the son of a slave owner home, you're gonna naturally grow up with a bias towards racism. Uh, And these are things that are passed on generationally. But what we eventually get at is this clear cut definition of what it means to take personal responsibility for my life and my choices and I'm not held accountable or suspect because of the choices of my parents or the choices that my kids choose to make that being said I'll get that a little bit later but because this passage is God's own revelation when he passed Moses on Mount Sinai he showed him his glory it was an answer to Moses's request for God's presence have you ever asked for God's presence? Have you ever longed for God's revelation? Have you ever hoped that God would feel more near or give you clear-cut definition? This was Moses trying to sort of pastor parent the people of God. They had just been delivered, saved from slavery, the oppressive reign of Egypt, and they'd come out into the wilderness, they walk up Mount Sinai, they get this new covenant. It's a picture of marriage. God is saying, you will be my bride, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will look out for you. Meanwhile, they're off making a golden calf because Moses is taking too long with God. And Moses comes down with these tablets, he crashes them, and he's like, oh my God, what have you called me into? I can't lead these people. And then he asks for God's favor, for God's presence to not depart. And so God is saying, you can't handle my presence, but let me just tell you who I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Could you tonight hear those words as a new picture of a God that you might not know, of a God that you might not believe in, a God that you might not even um, uh, have experienced yet, but that is God's self-revelation. Now, the term uh, Yahweh Elohim. So let me just break down the terms of, of, of how God he says the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh was the Hebrew term uh, for breath. It was a term of almost reverence, the awe of God. And so when we would get captured uh, in the presence of God, it was thought to be the very nostrils. So how near is God? as close as your next breath. In fact, out of reverence, they wouldn't even spell it with the vows. It was simply uh, written, Bjorn, can you go to the next slide, please? Yahweh, and I've added the vows, but in the original Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, because God was as near as your breath. So if you think about it, it would sound like an inhale and an exhale. Have you ever had the chance to experience the nearness of God as your next, as your last breath? Whether you believe it or not, whether you've experienced or not, whether you've been exposed to it or not, God is that nearer. Now, the next phrase is Elohim, which would literally translate from the Genesis passage of creation to be God as both creator and judge of the universe, Now here's what's really fascinating. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have to relearn our theology. We have to relearn our biases. Because when we hear the word, oh yeah, God of judgment, we still cower with this, God's pissed at me. With this kind of anger that God is always angry with me. And the only reason that he accepts me is because of Jesus. And I said yes to Jesus, so that God will be a little less angry, but in his heart, he's still angry. But God, Elohim is described as both creator and judge, but listen to how he judges. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's already delivered a verdict about who you are as a part of a fallen humanity. And he is maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I hope in the next few weeks, as we dive into just these two verses, we can begin to understand God is not angry with us. God has already leveled a judgment. The verdict has come in, and he has said, I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands. So what I would simply say is that life is hard, (laughs) no joke, and at times beautiful. In fact, one poet said it this way, every rose has a thorn. (laughs) Life is hard and it's beautiful at the same time, but because life is hard and we don't always get our way, we have, are tempted to think that somehow God is absent, God is angry, God is unloving, and God is somehow punishing me. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we see is that either he's good, he's loving, and he's present, or he's not. And so what faith does is faith doesn't prevent us from struggle. What faith does, hear me on this, is allow us to have a lens to see God in the midst of struggle. I prefer to get my own way. I prefer my own timing. I prefer the path of least resistance, but in any of those things I don't actually need God. So when people live in a prosperous society, when we live with abundance, it's really hard to see our profound need for God let alone God as the source. I wanna show you a video. It's a little longer than normal videos that I show. It's a 12 minute clip. There's two sides to a story. It's an amazing teacher with an amazing story. And it's not a good one, but there's this consistency of who God is in this one man. And what I would simply say is this one man has figured out how to live an integrated life. So let's just watch this video be inspired. You turn a little louder.
1: Test,
0: question,
1: alert. Test, question, alert. Nope, from the big
0: giant head. I don't fall asleep in this class. I just don't. And it's weird because I can remember falling asleep in every other class.
1: I've never had a teacher like him at all. Like calculus every day, just... I pass out. Like he's probably one of the teachers. Like probably when I'm 75 years old, that I'll still remember. RT's I fall asleep in there all the time. He's the epitome of what I think a teacher should be. Go ahead, start How do you know how far this is? You know what? I think uh, that's what I was afraid of. Okay. <laughs> you go ahead and go uh, get that tail
0: for quick. Mr. Wright has a key to the city. Yeah. I just tend to fall asleep a lot. I, it's a bad thing, but I do. But this class just keeps me interested. So there's no room for napping, because you're learning.
1: It's smoking! Be <laughs> careful. boy. Oh my gosh. It's like this guy is just crazy. He's just exploding with fun. <laughs> you see a huge fireball burn in my hand and go up to the ceiling and all the matter I'm not gonna have any kids sleeping and every one of those people are out there asking how 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 and as soon as you get the kid asking how or why I can rope them in and get that intrigue going once again it's a love of money
0: he says I could care less about Newton's third law I want to teach you something for you to take outside of school that's what he's told us before so he really it, sh- it makes me feel like he really cares about me and I know he does He's a good man, and he will stick. go out his way for you.
1: Any last words? <laughs> Do you love us more than you know? <laughs> <Straight up. laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Three, two, one. Oh, what! man. Thank you. Sorry, everybody. I'll be signing. I'll be signing pieces of cinder block after class. You know, schools have them for six hours a day. And then they, the kids go home, and whatever atmosphere they have around for the other 18 affects them. And so, you know, schools can change a lot, but we also have to realize that they go home to a completely different environment. I, I think he could tell with me, like, uh, that I had stuff going on. So he, like, kind of reached out to me at first, and at first I was like, dude, like, you're a teacher. Like, I'm not going to talk to you. Like... But I did. What I went home to when I was young is very different than what some of these kids go home to where they don't have a mom and dad or some of these kids I hear them talk about all the time where there were gunshots at night. I'd have a hard time sleeping or studying if I knew there were gunshots outside there. I've pretty much been on my own since I was like 15. So, yeah, I mean, I talk to him about a lot of stuff, like at home and stuff, and he works with me. I mean, I've had everything from Mr. Wright we're pregnant, to... I've had an abortion, to I've ran away, and uh, here's what I'm saying. My father is beating me, and here's pictures of the holes in the walls, and you can see where the makeup is, trying to cover bruises. I mean, it's, yeah, and it's it's just very different than, than where some of the rest of us are. That's why one size fits all doesn't work. see mom made some. She said she was
0: going to make some, but I don't know if she will do it. your hands, Adam. Here you go,
1: Adam. Oh, there oh, go. Oh, oh, hey, you know amen yeah. Father, Son, always do <laughs> amen. Oh. Bless us, O oh Lord, and these like this, which you're about to receive from the of oh. Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, son. Like that one Abby is perfect in every way. She's a actually 15 not 14 she's 15 going on 25 she's you know one of these people that can't stand her dad because he's stupid and a little bit nuts and, and so forth so I, I, love, I love her to death when Adam came along though we didn't think it was going to be a boy and all of a sudden all right. a boy pops out and I'm thinking wow this is cool now I got a girl and a boy and not that I really cared but you get all the dreams of wow, I'm gonna be going to football games, I'm gonna be going to baseball games, if they're not any good at sports like I am, we'll be going to you know plays or something like that, whatever it be, yeah, I'm gonna be there for my little buddy, okay? No, now we have to give her our address. Oh, so what is our address in Spanish? Mm. Uno, uno, doso, doso. <laughs> what the heck? No. Oh, no. Hey. Is that okay. Is okay. It's That's Mr. Tim? Well, anyway, the, the nurse comes out and says, "This is your boy." And I get ready to hold him. She like, "We got to take him back." And I'm thinking, "What's going on?" She said, "He's breathing really, really fast. He was breathing 180 times a minute. It's about three times a second. Still to this day, breathes about 60 times a minute. That's once a second. Think about breathing that fast." You get pretty tired after all, while, wouldn't you? You get all your homework done? Yeah. Yeah, Can you breathe a little better now, Adam? Huh? Does that help? Huh? Did that help right there? You got a good head of hair. Yeah. Do yeah. so you like music? Loves music. How do you sound music? Uh. Come on, on, that wasn't it, that that was signing time. How do you sign music? Okay, so that's music. We then found out he was completely blind. Uh, He was born with something called Joubert syndrome. Only 417 people in the whole world have it. And what it is is um, it's an uh, autosomal recessive disorder where my wife has to have a gene and I have to have a gene that puts us together and it causes this to happen. So I have a completely intelligent little boy, but he can't control what his body does, even though his body is completely functional. The mere fact that right now your butt's on that chair, your butt tells your brain which way up is. His brain doesn't do that. So the mere fact that you can sit down and sit up is a miracle. Let's go. All right, pal. That's it, keep going. Oh! He is extremely self-abusive. Uh, for instance, um, if he gets scared or if he gets upset, he'll just start taking his fist and pounding his face as much as possible. If he wakes up and he gets scared and I'm not there, he'll roll out of bed and just start pounding his face on the floor. Constantly take his legs and just pound them on his wheelchair until he gets all bruised and bloody. So, when I started getting a, a rap on what all this was about, all those dreams, of ever watching my son knock a home run over the fence, went away. And talk about getting pissed at God. I was pissed because you know the whole thing about where the universe came from? I didn't care. What I care about is why? And you can pick on me all you want, but when you pick on my little boy, that's wrong. A totally innocent little baby and you're making him do that. I started asking myself, what was the point of it? (laughs) (laughs) So, as we went through all this, it was Abby that sort of taught me why. One day, I went to her room and she had Adam in the middle of all of her dolls. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? She's playing with my little brother. I'm thinking, he didn't know how to play. And she said, Adam, she said, like, hand me a doll or something, and he just smacked it. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. If he smacked that, he can see. When did you find out he can see? He said, like, I don't know. He just started smacking dolls. And I'm thinking, holy mackerel. And so then we started working with him and trying to teach him a little sign language. And there was nothing more incredible than the day you see this. What's that mean? Daddy, I love you. So cool. That's when I knew it didn't care about how things work anymore. It's the reason why things work. It's because of love. So there's something a lot greater than energy. There's something a lot greater than entropy. It's the fact that what's the greatest thing? Love. love. That's what makes it all the why we exist. So in that great big universe that we have with all those stars, who cares? Well, somebody cares about you a lot. And as long as we care about each other, that's where we go from. <laughs> I needed you yesterday. You hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was gonna
0: happen, I know, it's hard, it's hard.
1: Man, it's hard You okay? <laughs> I was worried about you yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Juice? I see you play, Jay. You say juice. You didn't say juice, you said play, right? Huh? Did you say play? You good? What do you want to play? Huh? What do you want to play? <laughs> what are you grunting for? I'm going ahead and I'll pick up the load. Uh, 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 he pulled the dirty old rag from his pocket and threw it up in the air, and the raven would swoop down and grab the rag in his beak. Good boy, Forrest smiled. Now I give it back. No, Chuck, Forrest growth. You're supposed to return it to me. But he could not get the raven's attention. Total frustration.
0: I think the reason why this moves me so much is because I see one man's life living with two very, very distinct realities, hard and good, and, and yet he's the same person, or maybe we could say it's the same God. God's in the midst of it and it begs the question when life moves from hard to impossible when when life feels like it goes from hopeless to relentlessly hopeless whom do you call on where is your resource. Where do you find strength? Because it's not that God is somehow divorced from the hardship, from the struggle, from the despair. It's that God's in the midst of it. And he's inviting us to recognize his presence. So what the hardship does is allow us to to be able to use faith to see God in the midst of him. And this is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. You know, we got this wrong really early on. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation story, and it was the world that God intended, and it was perfect. And there was this unashamed, unfiltered, Access to the presence of God. In fact, it said that God walked in the cool of the garden. There was no separation. There was no mystery. God was literally, physically within reach. And then sin entered the human condition and it created this fractured relationship that created such a separation from us. And then you have Adam and Eve and their two sons. We have the first sibling rivalry. And, and, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And then after that, they start having families. And in, and in Genesis chapter 4, you know how it describes the human condition for those who, who were interested in God as the source? It says in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, uh, And they began to call on the name of the Lord. Or the word call would simply mean and uh, proclaim the name of the Lord. So before there was any denominations, before there was any affiliations, it was just simply God's people were known as those who would call on the name of the Lord. It wasn't that God had somehow saved humanity. It wasn't that he had repaired or restored creation. God has still been trying to restore and repair. And now he wants to use us in the midst of that salvation experience. And so the question I have is, what does it mean for us to call on the name of the Lord? And I would simply make just a couple of observations, is that faith begins by calling on the character, the nature of God. We need to know who God is. And maybe we were introduced to God as someone who was upset and angry and full of wrath, except that this passage describes God as someone who is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I look at it like an expanding thesaurus. You want to talk about growing spiritually? Let's figure out how to expand our thesaurus of knowing the character and the nature of who God is. And the more we know about who God is, the more we can see and know God's heart even when life feels impossible. The second thing I'd say is we cannot call or proclaim God without knowing him. Uh, What we see in Genesis 32 is them not knowing God. God saved them and God's taking too long with Moses and so they start creating a calf. They melt a bunch of jewelry down and they form this calf and they get into all this like an emotional frenzy and they try and create An image of God that they can relate to I think we do this often when God is not forthcoming when God is not in our timing we have this way of just saying okay I've got I've got to provide for myself and we answer the question of who is the source of our life the third thing I would simply say is our need to proclaim was a direct effect of the fall Genesis 3, sin entered the human equation. So before sin fractured or separated us from God, we had this unfiltered access to God. And because sin entered the human experience, now we're left to have to take initiative to call, to proclaim on God. That's where salvation begins. And so I simply want to just pray tonight and just close in a time where we pray and we're just going to have a little bit of time of worship. But would you just bow your heads and your hearts and just consider these words? You think about that story and I hope that story lingers with you as it has with me. But I would simply ask you just a couple of questions as we pray to the Lord. How do you proclaim or call on the Lord? How do you call on God regularly and personally? I think that's a question worth wrestling with. Do you have a regular diet, a standing appointment? And when you call, do you know who to call on? Is it a spiritual Santa Claus God give me or do we know the character and the nature of God? hold God in contempt? Or do you know that God is compassionate, loving? Second question I would just say is what interrupts or fractures or currently separating you from the love of God? Is there a relationship? Is there an addiction? Is there a vice? Is there something that keeps you from intimacy with God. Father, I pray that in our, just our few minutes remaining here, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts and our minds, that you would be courting us unto yourself. I pray that you would bring special revelation and that we could turn could return to you. I pray that you would heal the image of what we've come to understand you as or believe you as or accept you as and we would be able to see who you are in light of your your word, of your own self-disclosure. I pray that you would heal the image. Forgive us for making you into something we can relate to. I pray that we would see you as our source of salvation, hope,